let's, let's go ahead and pray, and, and we'll, start, we'll start this. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for this time that we get to spend together. We just give you thanks that we're able to come um, as one body, Lord, to come and to just hear your word, Father. We would just pray that um, what, we, what we go over tonight, what we read tonight, Lord, that you would just speak through, through these words, Father, that you would just be able to touch the hearts of those that are in this room, Father, that whatever it is that you want to say to, to us, Father, to me, that you would just go ahead and do so, Father, and that you would strip away anything that would get in that way. We just give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the other day, uh, one of my coworkers, uh, he works remote. He recently asked um, our boss, well, he told her that he was going to move to Arizona, and he said, hey, is there any possible way for me to work remote from Arizona? And so they worked a little something out, and so now he actually, I think he lives just north of Phoenix, and then he, he works remote. We talk to him via chat or video message. Um, so most of the time that I correspond with him um, is usually just through chat. Um, so the other day, he sends me a message on chats, like in the morning, we were going to coordinate some, some upgrade on, on some of the servers that we have. And I noticed that he sent me a photo. And so I was like, okay, usually we send each other like, like memes or like funny pictures that we just kind of share throughout the day. So I opened up this photo, and the first thing I noticed, it's a, it's a photo of his bank account. And, um, you know, at first I, I thought he was, um, you know, as the kids say, flexing, um, <laughs> showing me how much he makes. And I was kind of like, oh, man. Why would you do that to me? He is, he is a, a step above me, so he would be making more money. So I was like sitting there, I'm like, why would, why would, you, why would you show me that? And I was, getting all, I was getting all hot and bothered, you know? And, but I thought to myself, oh, I better wait, maybe there's a, there's a good explanation to this. And so the next thing he does is he actually, he actually writes what he was trying to say. When our program, whenever you send a photo, it sends it first without actually letting you put text in, so he forgot to put the caption. And the caption that he sends over is, sometimes it sucks to be a good Christian. And I'm like, okay. I don't get it. So I start looking at the, at the photo he sent me. Like I said, it's just a, it's like a copy of his statement for the month. And then I noticed it. Um, it was a Friday that he messaged me, and there was four different direct deposits into his account. So somebody in, in, the, in, the, in the, the financial department accidentally paid him four times uh, that day. So he had four times that money. That, I didn't realize that at first because I, so I was so mad that he was even showing me. Uh, <laughs> So it's a good thing I held my tongue. So anyways, so we noticed that he's, he's, they, they paid him four times, and we knew that it wasn't a technological issue because it was four separate times, and the amounts weren't even the same. They were, they were kind of variations. It was very weird, so we're pretty sure somebody actually like, physically messed up when they were in, uh, entering payroll. And so he goes, man, sometimes it sucks to be a good Christian. He's like, I just sent him an email saying that they, they paid me four times. You know, and he's kind of implying, like, oh, you know, maybe if I wasn't a good Christian, I wouldn't say anything, and I'll just, just keep the, the, the three extra checks um, I think I've told you where I work, so I won't, say it. I won't say it again, but we are in the middle of a financial crisis, so stuff like this is kind of like, well, maybe this is the reason we're in a financial crisis. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so, anyways, we go on with our day, we do other stuff, but that phrase stuck with me. That was like a week or two ago. That phrase stuck with me. Just, and we, we, he said it jokingly, and I'm not here to disparage him. He's actually a great guy, and, and, and I love him to death. Um, but it was just a, it was, it's, a, it's a phrase that I know I say all the time whenever I'm, I'm challenged with something or whenever I know that I have to make the right decision or whenever I make the wrong decision, then I'm like, oh, man, I should have, I should have made a better decision. Um, so today, I wanted to go read this uh, a passage that kind of really kind of resonates with this idea of being a good Christian, being a good follower, being somebody that, that loves the Lord and honors the Lord. Um, if you would, if you open your Bibles up to 1 Samuel, we'll go 1 Samuel chapter 15. Normally, I like to read the chapter before because I think it helps to get an idea of what's going on before we break into it. No, we got time. I'll read it. I'll read it. First Samuel chapter 15. Um, 
I know, I know Steve Price says that we shouldn't read the whole chapter or we should only do a couple of verses per message, but I kind of felt like we needed to do a little bit. We actually won't read the whole chapter. We'll read up to a point. But anyways, 1 Samuel 15, uh, we'll start verse 1. Uh, so Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he, ambushed him, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out from Egypt. Now go up and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell him 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, Get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah and all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen and the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything, everything that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was, uh, it was told... Uh, to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone down... Um, he's gone around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep or, uh, in my ears, in the, in the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Samuel said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed." So Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I, ha I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of the Amalek. I, uh, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of things which could have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So we'll stop there for right now. So we start, we start reading this chapter, and in the first couple of verses, we see that God has given Saul a mission. Um, he's told him to go, go to the Amalekites, and go and utterly destroy everything. And the Lord kind of makes it pretty clear. Go destroy men, women, children oxen, sheep, everything. Everything that is there, um, go ahead and, and, and kill them. Um, there's just a, li a little history on it. Um, Saul, we know that when he was, uh, he was chosen as king, he was the first king of Israel, it was, 
it was during that time that when he was chosen, he was already, Israel was already fighting with the Philistines. So one of the things that we know about Saul's reign is that it was always full of war. Um, he was always fighting with the different countries that were around him. Originally, he had the Philistines in the west. Um, the Ammonites were in the east. Um, he would go back and fight with the Philistines over and over again. And he even fought with the Moabs that were, that were in the east, the Amalekites in the south. Um, so he essentially Israel during this time, Saul during his reign, they're literally being attacked all the time, year after year, in every direction. So Saul really is a king of war. Um, and so we, we know that he's, he's faced with this great task. I think one of the hardest things, too, is that because Saul was the first king of Israel, he didn't really have a history to look back on. He couldn't look back and be like, okay, what did the previous king do? What did we do previously? So he's kind of like the first. And usually it's kind of, the, it's kind of hard being the first person to do something because you're not, you're not exactly set up with an example or something to follow. But anyways, he, during this time, he, he, he's faced with all this war. And, you know, when we read this, we, when we read the history, we're kind of like, man, he, he really was kind of set up in a way where it was very hard to succeed. But even more so, we've, for us, we would go back and we would think, okay, more reason to cling to the Lord, more reason to seek out the Lord, the Lord's um, guidance and counsel, to talk to the prophets. But we know that if we go through his history, he struggled with that a lot. Um, here we see that the Lord has given him in the first couple of verses specific instructions to go and to wipe out the Amalekites. Um, sometimes we read this passage and I know that we, we kind of think to ourselves, man, this is a really brutal passage or it's a, re a really brutal judgment that the Lord has asked for him to do to go and utterly wipe out um, these people. Um, some of the history behind that is that in Exodus 17, we know that Israel encounters Amalek on the way out of Egypt. Essentially, as they're trying to get out, he basically blocks the way and doesn't want, he doesn't want to allow them to make it to the promised land. And so in Exodus 17, we have that story where the Israelites are in battle with the Amalekites. Um, it's the famous, it's the famous, the well-known story. Um, Moses is lifting his arms up, and when his arms are up, the people are winning. His arms start to go down you know, they start losing, and then we know that's when Aaron and her hold his hands up. And so that, that's the battle, that he, one of the first battles they have with the Amalekites. And we know that when they finish that battle, the Lord tells them, hey, put this down, write this down, write this in the memorial book, write it down that these people tried to stop you from leaving, and the Lord makes a promise saying, I will wipe out, I will blot out the Amalekites from history. So after they win that battle, that's I think roughly 400, 400 years before this time, he tells them, I will come back, and I will make sure that the Amalekites are blotted out. And so eventually, uh, eventually, it's funny because even though this, this happened at that time, they made a note of that, that at that time, when Caleb and Joshua make it to the promised land and um, you know, the, 12, the, the 12 spies during that time, they actually bring up that, that subject again, man, you know, we were attacked by the Amalekites. And so the Amalekites have always been in the history of Israel attacking them, and so God, God made that promise to them. Um, and so one of the things that it's, it's, uh, we like to focus on is the fact that the Lord made that promise 400, 500 years before this time, but he never forgot. And so now we're here in this well, in the present time of this, of this passage, and the Lord remembered, I made a promise to my people, and it's time for me to execute that, that promise. Um, it, it's funny because even when Moses is doing his farewell message in Deuteronomy, he actually brings up, you know, we're still going to wipe out the Amalekites. So they kept bringing it up over and over again that the Amalekites were people that they were, the Lord was going to execute judgment on. So sometimes you read this passage and you don't know all that. It's kind of like, man, the Lord just chose a random people to destroy. But in reality, there was a lot of history there and the Lord was, was willing to make sure that he completed his promise to these people. So he gives these instructions and he gives them, them the, 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 the Hebrew word is, um, Heherim, which is just complete, utter destruction. Like, not, like no rocks are, are not turned over. Everything's fine. Everything's gone. He gives a very clear message of how he wants things to be done. Um, 
And so this is one of the tests that, Saul's, that Saul goes through. If you go back two chapters in, in chapter 13, we know that Saul has already, he already kind of failed another test. He did the unlawful sacrifice where they were getting ready to go to battle. He was supposed to wait the seven days um, for the sacrifice for Samuel to come, and he doesn't, does the sacrifice himself. And so at this point, Saul's kind of already in like a tumultuous um, standing with, with the Lord and with Samuel. Um, and so here we see in these first ones, Saul is a good leader. He's a good, he's a good captain. He's able to get all these men to come and be ready for this fight. The Lord gave him direction. He took that direction. He was able to pull all the men. We see that he was supposed to get 35,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and they all got it. And so, and so, and so he, we do know that he has the ability to bring people over and to do all these things. So the Lord says, do not spare them, but kill both man, women, and child, ox, sheep, and uh, camel and donkey. So verse four um, is when he brings them all over. Verse five, so we'll start actually, yeah, we'll start in verse five. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Um, and lay in wait in the valley. Uh, sorry, verse four. And then verse five. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, go, depart, get, uh, get, from, get down among from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings and the lambs, and, uh, and all that was good. And they were willing to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, um, that, that they utterly destroyed. So here's Saul being in this campaign. He gets all these people. Um, again, a little bit more history. The Canaanites are, were a group of people. They did have some good standing with Israel. Um, a lot of Bible scholars believe the Canaanites um, actually kind of derive from Moses' father-in-law. Uh, in Judges 1, they're kind of based, they, they kind of gives a little bit of credence to that. And so we know that in Numbers 10, Moses actually gives kindness to these people also. And so more than likely, Saul knew the history and he knew that they were able to help out. And so he kind of gives them a like, hey, you know what, we're going to go destroy these people, but I'm going to give you a chance to get out because you, we did show kindness to Israel. You did show favor to Israel. So please, if you want to leave, please leave and we won't include you in this. And they do, and they bounce. Um, and so here it says that they took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed the rest of the people with the edge of the sword. Um, Agag actually, it actually isn't a name, it's actually kind of a title that they give to the king of, the, of that area. So Agag is just another word for the king. Um, and so we can really kind of think through why perhaps he took Agag um, you know, alive instead of killing him. It could be that Saul was kind of prideful and he wanted to maybe parade around um, a prisoner of war. Um, maybe Saul wanted to brag a little bit and say that he was able to capture the king single-handedly. Or maybe, to be honest, Saul was just kind of a murderer and probably wanted to torture him or do something. We really don't know why Saul took him alive, but we can kind of guess based upon history. These might have been the things that he was doing. But the point is, he, he didn't do what the Lord commanded him, which was to kill Agag. Um, and so they keep Agag, they keep the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, um, and they destroy everything else that they don't, they don't believe is good. Um, and here's kind of where we see the first disconnection from the Lord. Not only is he disobeying the Lord, but he's actually kind of implying something different. So the Lord gave him a commandment, go and utterly wipe out these things. Go, destroy them, and get rid of them. But here we see that Saul and his people, instead of, just not follow, or instead of following what the Lord is saying and instead of just not doing what he's saying, they're actually making a judgment call. You know, when the Lord gives us a command, when he gives us a direction, you know, the Lord, the Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord understands what his purpose is. But here's Saul. He's taking God's directive, and he's saying, okay, I know this is what God told me to do, 
but I think this would be a better idea. So even though the Lord gave me this directive, utterly wipe out everyone, I think it would be a good idea if we kept Agag alive and if we kept the best for ourselves. And see, we already see that disconnect between them, that he is able to make a judgment call. He's saying, whatever you say, Lord, I get it, but I think this would probably be a better idea. And so he does that, and he decides to do what he thinks is the best idea. And I think what some, some of the writers that, that, that I was looking at when, when I was going through the history and I was going through some of the commentaries, they're saying that it's almost saddening for the Lord to see these things because the Lord isn't blotting out these people out of some sadistic rule. You know, He's not doing it because the Lord loves destruction. He's doing it because he has to, because he has to punish the sin. He has to protect his people. But for his own people to go and take prisoners of war, take spoils, take plunder, it's almost as if they're kind of enjoying what they're doing. They're almost pillaging where the, where the, you know, the city that they went to go destroy. And for re in, in reality, that's kind of painful for the Lord, that the Lord was trying to execute judgment because of sin, and yet people decided they wanted to do what they thought was best in their heart. They wanted to go and take and enjoy what probably other nations did, which was go, take prisoners, take spoils, take all the plunder. And so we kind of see this disconnection between the two of them. And then they made more judgment calls, and they said, well, I believe this is good, so I'll keep this. And I believe, in my personal opinion, in my humanistic opinion, in my sinful opinion, I think this is despisable. And they destroyed what they thought was despisable. And so we kind of see, you know, they're, they're, they're making their own judgments, their own calls. They're making their own valuations of what's there. Uh, verse 10, so now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul um, asking, or set up Saul, and for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel that Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he went up, set a monument for himself, and he had gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. This word greatly regrets. Um, in some translations, in some, in some of the readings, it actually could mean he repented. So he's, he's this is what the Lord wanted, and he, now he's repenting from that, from that idea. This is kind of an anthropomorphic, um, I guess, sentimentality. So the Lord is, you know, the Lord is the Lord. He's God, and he doesn't, he doesn't fit into our human, and our human physis, uh, physics and our human m mentality and emotions. But the Lord was able to relay that by you know, presenting himself to Samuel and saying, you know, you don't understand what I'm going through, but if I was to tell you something that you would understand... I am repenting right now. That's how you can understand what I'm feeling. So he's kind of showing, you know, in a human way, this is what I'm feeling. But this idea of being, he's, he's regretting, he's feeling sorry that he ever did it. And then, you know, it says that Samuel was grieved. And that word for grieved is, um, is literally like uh, a mother weeping for her, her child that has passed, for somebody weeping for somebody that has died, for some great loss, almost as if he was on the ground tearing his clothes, you know, and, and just feeling the pain that the Lord was feeling. You know, and, and, and we, we can kind of see, like, Samuel. Samuel's kind of the opposite of Saul. So Saul is doing what he wants to do in his own heart, in his own mind, in his own understanding. And Samuel, when talking to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, you know, I, I feel this regret. And Samuel's like, I, I feel this regret too. You know, and, and it says that Samuel cried all night long with the Lord, just tearing his clothes. And, and, and just this idea of this is what it means to, to be with someone or to be someone that is so close to God that when God tells you what he's feeling, when he relates to you in a way that you can understand what he's feeling, he felt it too. He felt it just as much as, as, as God would. And it's such an amazing concept to think that the actions of one man, you know, even though Saul is a king, he really is just a man. But it's, it's amazing to think that, that, that one man was able to move God in such a way where he regretted something, where he's almost pained by what he was doing, you know. And, and it's almost like Saul is causing all this disorder. He's causing all this death. He call, he's causing all this sin. The Lord is just, just so grieved. 
You know, and it's not like God is up in heaven and he has a, you know, a checkboard, a checklist and saying, okay, this is what I want. The Lord, the Lord is, is, is there and he's part of the process and he's trying to feel what the people are going through. And he's just so disappointed. You know, he's just so, he's just so hurt that this would even happen. And it's almost interesting to, to, to realize that this same Lord who, who feels these emotions, who goes through these emotions, who's able to relay these things, he feels that for every person in this room. You know, even though we think of the story and we think of like this is a historical account, some people don't even believe it's real because they don't believe in the word of the Lord. But we, we think we, we take this story, we come with almost like think like, well, this was back then, this doesn't really matter. But today, the Lord feels the same way. He feels the same way about his people. And we know that's true because of what the Lord did. What the Lord did. He would send his only son, he would come down to this earth. You know, even in the garden, you know, from the, from the fall of man, he already made one promise and he said, you know, that he would, he would send someone to crush the head of the snake. You know, that's a promise. You know, we take this passage and we see that the Lord remembered that promise for 400 years ago. But even before that, the Lord made a promise in the garden. You know, he makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Moses. He makes all these covenants about what he's planning on doing, sending the Messiah, sending the Son of God, sending someone to establish their kingdom. And the Lord does complete his promises. This is just one example of that. But God loves us so much that he would send his only son, that he would come to this earth, he would die on a cross, and he would die for everyone here in this room. You know, he would die for your sins, and he would raise again, he would be risen again in three days to prove his power over death. You know, that's how much God is moved by us, that he had a desire to do that. You know, and for me, it's kind of mind-blowing thinking that the Lord even cares that much about me, that he would do that for me, that he would do that for anybody in this room, for everybody. But that's who the Lord is, right? He, this is his creation. These are his people. In this instance, these are the people he set up as a nation. And he's just moved so much by it. And he's moved so much for us. And so when he says this, this phrase, has turned his back on me, that's this, this just tale of utter betrayal. This is like getting rejected. This is like anything you could ever think about, somebody just leaving you behind. And that's what the Lord is saying. This is what it feels like because he has turned his back on me. And so... We're told, that Saul, we're told that the people tell Samuel that Saul went up and he went up to Carmel to set up a monument. Um, this word monument, I think, uh, I can't pronounce it, but it's, it's like Yod. And literally, he's setting up a statue. And in most cases, they believe the statue is like a hand, like a hand gesture. Um, and he's setting up his own memorial for himself. Um, the thing that is kind of, is, is, I guess, so painful is that after this, he goes to Gilgal. And through historical accounts, we know that when usually they go to Gilgal, it's because they're going to go offer a sacrifice unto the Lord. But the first thing he decided to do was go to Carmel and make his own monument first. And so here we kind of just continue to see the character of Saul, that he would go and he would make a monument unto himself first. You know, the Lord sent him on a directive. The Lord sent him on a, on a path, on a plan. And even though he didn't do it, he thought he was doing it. But before he did anything, he went and set up his own monument. And after he goes and sets up that monument, then he decides, okay, maybe now I'll go down to Gilgal and offer that sacrifice and follow what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so we see Saul's motivation in which he took it upon himself to make his own judgments, go by his own rules, and then he goes and rewards himself by making that monument. And we kind of just see the, the heart of Saul and what he's doing. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be uh, you to the Lord. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So here, Saul sees Samuel. Whether or not you know, he knows that he messed up, whether he, maybe he's just blind to his own ambition, he decides to get ahead of it and be like, oh, Samuel, hey, what are you doing? Hey, we did it. We did it. We, we, we did what you asked us to do. 
Um, it's actually interesting because in the, in the news right now, there's a there's, there's a story about a, a, an actor, and uh, he claimed to have been he claims to have been assaulted by certain members of political party for certain things that he was doing, or that he, the, the kind of person that he is. Um, and when he did that, you know, the police started investigating. They weren't able to find too many clues. But in order for him to get ahead of the story, he went out and he told he went on the news. He went on all these things. He said, "Well, of course I got attacked. You know, if you don't believe I got attacked, it's because you know you don't you don't you don't like who I am and you're a bigot or." any other thing. So he was trying to get ahead of that story. And then I think now um, they're kind of figuring out that he lied and it might have been a hoax. But this is kind of what Saul is doing is he kind of knows, okay, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Maybe he doesn't know. But he's trying to get ahead of the story and saying, okay, hey, look, Samuel, I know what you're going to say. We did it. Mission accomplished. We don't worry about it. And, and so, again, to, whether he, he knows what he's doing, we really don't know. We, can, we kind of make assumptions about that. But he goes as far as saying that he followed the commandment of the Lord. We have followed the commandment of the Lord. But Saul could not overcome the noise of his plunder. We see that as soon as Samuel gets there, he's able to hear all the animals around him. It probably smells too, because if all these animals are kept in the same place, it's probably not the most easiest thing to kind of hide. And so we can see here that if Saul is being prideful, you know, if he, he decided to do his own will, you know, he's being prideful. If he's being outright disobedient and didn't want to do with the Lord, essentially he has these two sins. And sometimes these sins that he has, these sins that sometimes, you know, I, that I have, that we have, it kind of makes us blind to the things around us. It kind of makes us kind of close our eyes to the other things. So even though, it's, you know, if, if we were there, we'd probably be like, you know, it's pretty obvious that you didn't do what the Lord asked you to do. But he was so, he was just so full of himself that he's kind of like, oh, yeah, what are you talking about? And so we know that, we, we, we know that he's, he's kind of just doing his own thing. Saul offers up his only explanation. Well, you know, we only took the best because we thought God would appreciate the best and that his plunder would bring glory to God. Um, but if you were a police officer, if you were an investigator, you would probably be like, well, if that's what you're saying, you probably knew that what you did was wrong. And it kind of unravels the story. But isn't that sometimes what we do in our own lives? Or at least I know that's what I do in my own lives is sometimes I think about what I've done and I go, well, you know, I was supposed to do this, but I kind of did half the right thing. I think I can make up for it if I do something else. But we know what the truth is. We know what God wants, you know, and, and, and we know what he's asked of us. But sometimes we choose to ignore um, some other things in order to, 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 to do what we want to do and kind of make our own judgments. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, the greatest football team on earth won the Super Bowl, led by the greatest quarterback to have ever existed, you know. I won't say names because I don't want anyone to stumble. But, uh, but it happened. And so I remember the day or the week before, uh, everyone was letting me know what was I going to do. And I told them, Mom, I'm going to go to my mom's house, watch the game with my mom and my cousin. And then somebody was like, well, are you, are you going to make it tonight meeting? And I was like, well, you know, the game starts kind of late. Promised my mom I'd go see her. And I said it jokingly, but then later I kind of felt bad about it. I was like, well, I went to the home for breaking a bread the week before. So in reality, I got a plus one on, on my events. So I'm okay to miss it. And, and I'm okay to miss it. And uh, the person that I told it to kind of just looked at me, and I was like, I'm, joke I mean, I'm joking, but I'm still not going to go. So that's a personal story. That's something, that, and, that's, and I said it jokingly, but in reality, that really is human nature. Right? We think that, okay, I don't necessarily want to do this thing, but I did this other thing, so that kind of, that should, that should, you know, it should cancel out. And, you know, obviously it doesn't. Obviously the Lord wants complete and total obedience. And here, Saul's kind of doing the same thing. You look, you told me to do this. You told me to utterly wipe out everybody, but... I did something better. I got the best. We're going to sacrifice it to God. I know we didn't talk about sacrificing to God, but I, I thought that if we did it, it'd be totally cool. And so we kind of see, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of going around. And uh, to be honest, he's going through this. He's actually throwing the people under the bus. You know, the people took the plunder. 
the people thought it would be a good, a good idea to bring the sacrifice. It almost reminds us of, um, of Aaron when the, the people, Moses goes up into the mountain to get the Ten Commandments to talk to the Lord, and the people tell Aaron, hey, look, we need you to build us a graven image so that we can worship God. And he goes, okay. And they take all the stuff and they make the golden calf. And then when Moses comes down, Moses is like, what are you guys doing? And then Aaron's like, well, you know, the people wanted it. They said we needed, a, we needed something to, to worship, something to do. And I just happened to throw this gold into the fire and just out came this golden calf. And, you know, like, I don't know, it's crazy. I don't know how it happened. And I almost feel like Saul's kind of doing the same thing. He's like, well, you know, the people told me to do this. And now all of a sudden we have all these all these animals, and we have Agag over here. Like, I don't know, I don't know what happened. And we kind of see that Saul is throwing his own people under the bus. Um, Saul is supposed to represent the leadership of the people, right? He was chosen by the people, you know, head and, head and shoulders above the rest. He was anointed by God, and he's supposed to be the representation of his people, the representation of leadership among them. And like a bad leader, he throws people under the bus. You know, we kind of, we, you know, I, I don't know, we've, we've all had different experiences with supervisors and people that we work for. We always know that a good supervisor is self-sacrificial. A good, a good leader is always willing to take on the blame himself, um, you know, to protect his employees. He's always willing to take responsibility for what's happening because he knows that he's in charge. But here we see that Saul's kind of doing the opposite. He's like, well, I, I don't know what happened. These guys did something. I don't know what happened. And so... We have this idea of just leadership, and so even for us in this room, you know, some of us, we, we, you know, we do leadership for Sunday school, we do leadership for Boys Brigade and Girls TNT, you know, sometimes we take leadership at home, you know, we, we, we're the ones that teach our kids, or your kids, not my kids, we teach, our, we teach the kids about the Lord, and we're kind of held to this higher standard. Um, when, we, when I did senior camp a couple weeks ago, I had the boys from, from, this, from this church, and for most of them, you know, they've, they've been in church their whole lives, they know the word in and out, you know, they, 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 they trust in the Lord, and so I always try to focus, especially when I have kids that are older and kids that are already established um, believers, I try to take it to another level and say, you know, obviously, you know the gospel, you know what Jesus Christ has done, you believe it, and you go and live it out, so now I always kind of challenge them, it's time for you guys to be leaders. You know, you guys are, are mature, well, not mature, but you guys are older um, Christ, Christian boys, you know, and there are younger Christian boys that are here that need your guidance. There are other people in the world, they're your friends that don't know the Lord, they need your guidance, and you're kind of held to this higher standard. You know, and here Saul would have been held to a higher standard. He, he literally spoke with Samuel whenever he could. He had the word of the Lord coming to him more, probably more often than any other person in that kingdom. Um, and even though he had all that, he didn't hold himself to that standard. And it's seen very evident in this passage where he decides to do his own thing, make his own judgment, make his own calls, and obviously put his own people, put, you know, try, he would even put judgment on his own people saying, well, it's their fault that we did this. If you're going to be mad at anyone, be mad at them. And so we know that, that this form of leadership, we know that we're all going to be held to a standard. And the writer, of, the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, he talks about having confidence in your leaders, submitting to their authority because they keep watch over those who must give an account. So everyone here that, that has some form of leadership, whether, whatever it would be, we are held accountable to what we do um, with that leadership, how we lead people, what we do, what responsibilities we give them, what responsibilities we take on ourselves. And so we know that it's something that everyone in this room, you know, whether it's, you know, one, one time your whole life, whether you have that leadership, we know that you're going, you're going to be held accountable for that. And so, and so this is kind of like a bad example of being a bad leader. Um, so verse 16, so Samuel spoke to Saul and said, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Uh, and the Lord sent you on a mission saying, go devote to the destruction of the sinners, the Amalekites, and the fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on this mission, which you, the Lord, had sent me, and brought back Agag, the king of the Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the, people took, but the people took the spoils and the sheep and the oxen and the best things devoted to, to destruction to the sacrifice of the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel's almost like literally interrupting, like, okay, you know what, just stop talking. You're making it worse. Um, and it's almost funny because Saul's like, all right, go ahead and speak. Like he has some directive to tell Samuel to speak. It's almost kind of, it's almost kind of like, well, don't tell me, don't tell me that. And so he's trying to protect himself from his own destruction. You know, and Samuel's kind of saying, you know, weren't you, weren't you, weren't you just nobody? You know, when, when, when Saul is chosen as king, he's like, I'm just... I'm just a, a man from a small tribe, a small city. You know, nobody knows me. How could I be king? And then, and then you know, Samuel anoints him. And it even says that the spirit of the Lord came down upon him. And Samuel kind of reminded him, you were chosen for this path. You know, you were chosen to be the king. You know, why are you not doing what you're supposed to be doing? You know, the Lord sent Saul on this mission. Even though Saul is bringing all these people with him, the Lord sent Saul. He didn't send the people. He didn't send Israel. He didn't even send Samuel. He sent Saul. And Saul was held responsible, but he disobeyed. And it's almost funny because Saul decides to double down on his claim that he did obey the Lord. I did what the Lord told me to do. And it seems like Saul's kind of just letting himself, kind of just putting his foot in his mouth. And it's almost interesting because there's just this key phrase that for me is almost painful to read. But Saul tells Samuel, it was the Lord, your God. You know, and, and when, when you get to a point where, you know, maybe you're doing the wrong thing. Maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Maybe you're not holding yourself to that standard. You almost try to distance yourself from what you're supposed to be doing. Well, this is, you know, that's your God. What's well, your responsibility? Well, it's not really what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and Saul is just kind of just doing everything he's not supposed to be doing. This is your God. That, you know, I did what you told me to do. You know, and he's just trying to throw himself away from the situation. He's not willing to take on that, that burden, not take on that, that, that you know, responsibility. And so we see that he's doubling down on his things. And he's just like, this is your God. And as it turns out, as it turns out, Saul's telling him, we, we wiped out the Amalekites. But actually, if we read through the rest of the scriptures, we see that um, David still had to go fight the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 27. And then it said that even Haman, so Haman during Esther's time, some of the Bible scholars believe that he was actually derived from the Amalekites. And then it's kind of ironic because if you read through the text um, in 2 Samuel, I think, the person that ends up killing Saul is said to have, be, is to have been an Amalekite. And so we kind of see, like, he didn't even really do what he was supposed to do. He said, well, we killed everybody but the king. But some of the text kind of shows that that might not have been true. And I think that's almost evident that we read, this, that we read these and we see that, you know, when we don't follow what God has told us to, sometimes it comes back and bites us. Sometimes when we don't do what the Lord has asked us to do, that sin that's there, it doesn't just go away. You know, when we think about the fact that the Amalekites had attacked the people of Israel, of Israel 400 years ago, it wasn't one... <laughs> isolated event. It was something that kept attacking them over and over and over again for 400 years, for 500 years, even beyond Saul's time, you know? And, and it's just like, if he had taken care of it when the Lord had asked him to take care of it, they would have been done with it. But because he didn't, now his people had to suffer for what happened. And there's this idea of, as a leader, he was supposed to make these, these calls, he was supposed to do what the Lord has told him, and protect his people, fulfill God's promise to his people, and he didn't. And now his people suffered. It isn't just Saul that suffered, it's his people that suffered as well. And so sometimes people ask me, what's my favorite verse in the Bible? And I usually tell them it changes, you know, mostly because there's just, you know, there's a couple of verses that I think apply, you know, in that time of my life where like right now this is what I'm feeling. But actually these couple of verses that are coming up are the ones that I would say are my favorite verses. Um, verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. This, this word, obedience, it's, a, it's shama, I think, in, in the Hebrew. And it's this idea of listening carefully, 
listening with intent and listening as if you're as if the words are like honey and you want every every ounce of it you know sometimes i think we we hear words like obedience we're like oh we know what that means but in this text in this version there's just this idea of obedience is almost an action Oh, it is an action, but it's, 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 it's a deep action. You know, not only are you hearing what someone is telling you, but you're like taking notes. Okay, this is what you told me to do. Okay, tell me that again. I don't want to mess it up. What did, what did you say? Did you, and it's taking this idea of I want to know everything that you said so that I know it 100% completely and listening carefully and then listening with intention that, okay, I'm going I'm to put all these notes down and not only am I going to write these things down, but I'm going to go do it. You know, I'm going to go do it because that's what you asked me to do because that's what I want to do. And then beyond that, I'm going to do it because this is awesome because I want to obey you, because I feel like if I obey you, as it, like I said, it's like, it's, like, it's like you're revitalizing my life. So this idea of obedience is just this over-encompassing, I want to do everything that you told me to do. I'm going to do everything. If you were to ask me what I did, I'm going to tell you exactly what you told me to do, because that's what I did. And so this idea of obedience that, that you know, that's what the Lord wants. You know, one, one could make a thousand sacrifices to God. You can work a thousand hours doing services. You can give a million dollars to any organization for, 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 for the Lord or for other, for other things. But if your heart is not surrendered to the Lord, if you're not doing it out of obedience, if you don't have this desire to do it, all of that really doesn't mean anything. You know, the Lord says, I don't, you know, you, you know the sacrifices are nice, the, 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 uh, the, the aromas from all these sacrifices are great, but I would rather have obedience than to do all those things. You know, we, we know that Saul ends up failing this test. We know that um, at the end of this chapter, he's actually stripped away from the kingdom. The Sam, you know, he tries to reach out, he grabs Samuel's robe, it tears, and Samuel's like, look, just like you tore this robe, you know, the Lord is tearing this kingdom away from you. You know, and we see that Saul feels regret, and we know that Saul actually will reign for another 25, I think 25 years before, he, before David comes on the scene. But just this action that was made apparent to the Lord, that he no longer wanted to follow what the Lord was telling him. He no longer wanted to do what the Lord was telling him. And the Lord made a decision, okay, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna work together anymore. Um, and this isn't meant to tell anybody here in this room that you know, if, if the next time you mess up, the Lord's gonna cut you off. We know that's not true. But it's this idea of what is in your heart? What are you hoping to do? You know, I think of my friend, uh, he texted me that, he, t- he sent me that phrase, man, sometimes it sucks to be uh, a good Christian. And it's like a phrase we say all the time, but I'm like, you know what? Like, you know, maybe that's what we're supposed to do. You know, maybe that's what we're, we're supposed to feel, this idea of being obedient. And, you know, sometimes being a good Christian is, you know, meaning that you have more character, meaning that you have more restraint, meaning that you have more love, more action, more sacrifice, more pain. You know, sometimes it means that we have to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. I don't, you know, he didn't necessarily want to give up the three extra checks that he got that month, but he knew that it was the thing that he was supposed to do. You know, sometimes we don't want to go to night meeting on the night of the Super Bowl because, uh, you know, things are happening. But, you know, where is your heart in the matter? You know, do you want to be, you know, are you working to like, oh, I don't want to, you know, sucks to be a good Christian? Or are you excited to be a good Christian? And so... You know, why should we be excited? We should be excited because the Lord has done so much for us. We spoke earlier about, you know, the, the Lord would send his only son. He would come and die for us. They're the fact that every person that puts their, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no hell. There is no punishment for that anymore because the Lord has paid that price. And now I have this desire to come and to worship him and to obey him and to do the things that he wants me to do because I'm just so overjoyed that I don't have to pay that price. Um, one of my other favorite verses that I, I think kind of kind of correlates to this, this whole chapter is, Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in the future. 
you know, it is, it is tough to be a Christian. I would never come up here and say that's the easiest thing to do. I know some people who are famous will, will say that, that it's easy to be a Christian and, 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 you know, if you do this, the Lord's going to do this. But, you know, it's not always easy to be a good Christian. It's not always easy to do the right thing. It's not always easy to say the things that you're supposed to say, to be an example to those around you, to be a better, you know, to be a better, have better character than, you know, your coworkers or your friends. You know, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes you get made fun of. Sometimes people reject you. Sometimes people don't want to be anywhere near you. You know, we live in an age where now, you know, being a Christian, people don't, don't like Christians, and they don't want to be anywhere near Christians, and they want to just, they want to, you know, some, in some cases they want, to, they want to hurt you. But we take these things that we do. We know what the Lord has told us, and if we do it and we have this idea of obedience, of wanting to do what the Lord is going to do, he will bless us, you know, and he, and he has already blessed us with eternal life, and we will have something to look forward to on that day that we see him face to face. So um, I just want to remind you guys, that's something I got to work on. I would never come up here and tell you guys that this is what you guys got to work on. This is what I got to work on, you know. But it just, to me, it just motivates me so much to know that the Lord cares so much about what I'm doing, that he loves my obedience, that he loves what we do, and it, it motivates, it moves him. What we do moves the Lord. Um, so let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for this time. We just give you thanks that you are a God that loves us so much that you would send your only son to come and to die on this earth, Father. We give you thanks because we know that you just love us so much, Father, that, that the obedience that we show you, that the love that we show you, that what we do when we come and honor you, Father, you love it so much and you want to have a relationship with each person in this room. We just pray, Lord, that you would allow us to come before you and to be obedient, Father, that you would show us what your obedience is, that you would show us what your love is, that you would show us what we need to do, Father, and that we would be able to execute it as, as you want, Lord. We would pray that your will would be our will and that you would change and transform our lives. We give you thanks in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.